one of the changes that was made a few months back when we uh, reorganized, I suppose, our, our Sunday morning worship and uh, made it a little bit longer and added some things to it. We added a, another prayer. Um, if you did not know and have not been able to tell, that particular prayer is led uh, each Sunday by one of our elders and, uh, and I would assume is, is just considered the elder's prayer. That alone, I believe, is powerful, that our elders would want to pray with us each week as a congregation. But then this morning, I don't know in all of my time in the Lord's Church if I've ever heard the widows of a congregation prayed for by name. And I hope that that was encouraging to you, and I hope that it was encouraging to those that, that find themselves alone and, and isolated in life because of circumstance. And, and it's, it's not the only uh, thing that is evidence of it, but you are loved and appreciated and uh, your needs are important to us, and I hope that you can t- tell that because of the prayer this morning. It was a Saturday evening, and I was an extremely young preacher. Uh, back, back in the time that if someone were to share a picture of me that day, I would get the, the comment, well, you were just a baby, and you must have gotten married when you were 12, and all of those things. But I was a very young preacher, and I, I was out in a, a public setting, a social setting on a Saturday night, and ran into another preacher in the area, and he was a well-known preacher and respected preacher and someone who was sought after and demand to preach, and so as we were talking in the course of this exchange that Saturday evening, I asked him, what are you going to preach in the morning? And I'll never forget his answer. His answer was, I don't know, maybe I'll preach on baptism. I haven't preached on that in a while. Straight face, didn't seem to be joking or, or kidding about it at all, and of all the things I could think, there were two just difficulties I had with that answer. One is, how could you not know on Saturday night what were you going to preach on Sunday morning? That, that alone was staggering to me. I, I guess maybe I thought, one day I'll get there. I, I, you know, one day, is that, that, that maturity in preaching? I don't think it is, but nevertheless, that was one thought. The second thought was this. Have we relegated the subject of salvation to an every now and then thought in our preaching. Now I realize there's more to the process of salvation, the offer of salvation, the blood of Jesus, than the subject of baptism. So I I won't read more into the response than was given, but does it seem like sometimes that over the course of a few weeks or maybe a few months that we don't really talk a lot about the need for and the process of and the value of salvation in Jesus Christ? In fact, I know firsthand that I I got to the end of multiple sermons and said something like this. Now, this sermon has not been intended to bring someone from a place of, 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 of not knowing Christ to the point of baptism, to the point of salvation, of accepting Jesus and finding salvation through his blood. And I guess we need to say that sometimes, but it seems like maybe that adding on an invitation at the end of sermons like that seems to be just a a nice way of concluding, a forced way of of summary, rather than that being the focus and intention of every word spoken as the gospel is preached. You see, we, we have a responsibility in the sharing of the message of salvation to emphasize salvation to talk about the need for the gospel and the power of it. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 15 to go into all the world and preach the gospel. 
he didn't just tell them to go, and he didn't just tell them to, to, to preach, but he gave them the subject matter. And if you will follow through the book of Acts, not our intention this morning, but if you were to follow through the book of Acts, you'll find they did exactly that. The phrases throughout Acts that suggested as they went preaching the gospel, and as they preached the gospel, they went on somewhere else, and they came to another place in order to preach the gospel over and over. And if you want some of those references, Acts 8, 25, Acts 8, 40, Acts 14, 7, Acts 14, 21, Acts 16, 10, and 24, or 20, 24, reveal that the emphasis and the message of the gospel, or the, the message of preaching in the first century wasn't the gospel. It was salvation. Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you. Say Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The preaching of the gospel, the message of salvation, the hope that's found in Christ for a hopeless and lost world. That should be the heart of our message. And so this month, I want us to, to take a closer look at that subject matter. At the need for and, and the power of and the, and, the, and the application of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. The word gospel means glad tidings. You've heard that before. It's the idea of the sharing of good news, the announcing of good news, the, 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 the declaration of what's positive and right and good. But did you know that in order for there to be good news about the gospel, there's got to be some bad news? That's, that's our thought for this morning. I've got some bad news. That's not my news. It doesn't originate with me, but it's absolutely necessary if we're going to spend a, a solid month dealing with the gospel, with the subject of salvation, with, with liberation in Christ. We've got to know why that's necessary. And not just, just with a cursory reading, not, not just with a, with, with, a, with a wave of the hand, with, with a statement that says something like this. Now, we all know, you know, most of the time when preachers do that, when they say we all know, that's probably something they should spend more time talking about. There's a good possibility we don't all know that. And even if we do all know it, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about it because every preacher says we all know. We all know the world's lost in sin. We all know the power and, and, and difficulty of being enslaved to sin. We've all lived in that life and, and suffered those things. And so it's almost with, with just a, 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 a passing glance that we jump to the process and the power of salvation, neglecting the idea of this this bad news. You know, it's interesting to me that sometimes people refuse the good news of the gospel because they don't want to spend time talking about the bad news. You know, have you ever stopped to wonder why evangelism has, has fallen off in our, in our world, in our country? You know, a lot of times it's, well, people are offended by Jesus. Or people are offended by particular doctrines. Or people just, just don't care about spiritual things. All of that may be true. But I think part of it's this. Is in order to get to the gospel, you've got to start with the need. And no one wants to talk about sin. Specifically, no one wants to talk about their sin. No one wants to be confronted and have to say, I am a sinner. I have violated some, some divine standards, some eternal principles that, that then make me stand in the wrath of one who's more powerful and more authoritative than myself, that I owe somebody something. And so, because man doesn't want to talk about their sinfulness, then the gospel never gets preached to them. Not because they would be offended by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Not because they, they would be put off by the, the commitment concept of, of, of taking up the cross. They simply don't want to deal with sin. And so, we attribute it to something else, and we don't address the issue at hand. 
You know, there was one writer who said people love their sin. Respectable sinners are especially prone to defend their approach to sinning. Gross sinners will more likely confess their sins and to turn to the Lord for redemption. Jesus said it in, in, in not so similar terms, but he said in, in Mark chapter 2, 17, that those that are healthy need not a physician. Those that know they're sick, they won't help. The individuals who don't know they're sick, they don't want to be told that. You know, they, I don't know if this happened in your home, but there was this phenomenon in our home when our, our girls were younger that, that if they started feeling bad, they didn't want us to check their temperature. You know why that is the case? Because they knew temperature meant you've got to stay home. Well, they could go out if they were coughing. They could go out if they felt bad. But if you had a fever, you couldn't, you couldn't do stuff with the youth group. You, you couldn't come to Bible class. You couldn't go out with your friends. You couldn't have anyone over. And, and doesn't it seem like in, in the home that a lot of times those fevers pop up on, on the most inopportune times? And so I don't want to know that I'm sick, so I don't have to cancel my plans. Friends, that's an immature way of looking at life, and that's how most people look at the gospel. Don't take my temperature. Don't investigate my life. Don't talk to me about sin. Don't, don't measure my, my life against the word of God. I'm healthy. I'm whole. All the while dying outside of Christ without an answer. Jesus described these kind of people in Matthew 13 as those who have closed their ears and closed their eyes. You know, so often in reading that passage, what we think about, what we think that means is this, is that they've closed off their eyes, they've closed off their ears to hearing what Jesus had to say about the church or about the gospel or about commitment. But I would say it also applies to what Jesus had to say about sin and iniquity and their separation from him. And they don't want to hear. They've purposely shut out the information, believing that if they don't hear it, then it's not truth. J.W. McGarvey once said, I would esteem above every other gift that could be bestowed upon me as a preacher, the power of adequately describing what sin is and adequately setting it before the people. But McGarvey believed that his job was half done, if not more than that, if he could just convince the people in the world that sin was a problem. And if he could, they'd want a solution. And so this morning, I want us to consider this, this bad news, this, this, this sinful concept that's found in Scripture and I want us to do so from the book that was used in our scripture reading. Open your Bibles to the book of Romans. There are a number of places I believe that we could have gone, and I'll make this statement, that there are some subjects in scripture that are not and really cannot be isolated to one particular text. I love to preach expository sermons, to delve into the text, to look only at one particular set of verses in a sermon, but sometimes... The subject matter and its magnitude cannot be fully addressed in, in ten verses or one book of the Bible. So I understand that we are, we are limiting somewhat our approach this morning as we consider the, the, the truth about sin, the good news, or the bad news rather, about the good news by looking at the book of Romans. I also want to make this, this statement. I, don't, I didn't go to the book of Romans because it somehow holds a superior place in the New Testament from the other letters of Paul. You know, there, there are some who actually hold to this idea that, that Romans contains the key to it all and, if, and, if, and, and that everything else as you understand it in the New Testament is filtered through the book of Romans. And that's why you have the idea of, of, of faith superseding the idea of works in the book of James for some people because Romans is that chief epistle. Hope that we realize that our Bibles are arranged the way they are because men arranged them that way and no one put Romans at the front because it was the most important one. 
It was really arranged because of length. It's the longest of the letters, and so it finds itself at the beginning of, of the, the, the letters of Paul as they're categorized in the New Testament. Now, it is a powerful book, and it does contain some things that we sometimes forget and overlook because it's a difficult book. But it isn't the chief and most important book, and therefore we get all of our, our theology and doctrine from it. If, if, if somewhere else in the Bible helps us understand Romans, then that book becomes pretty important in the study as well. But nevertheless, as we look at the book of Romans, there are at least five truths about sin that are revealed. And we'll take these in, in very short order this morning and, and hopefully emphasize the need that we have for the gospel. Now, I realize the limited capacity of the application this morning, considering that the majority of us in this room have obeyed the gospel, have been rescued from sin, have found salvation through Jesus. Okay? However, that does not mean that we don't struggle with and deal with sinfulness. Sometimes on a regular daily basis as God's people. And so I hope that as we investigate these principles and these passages in the book of Romans that we will be encouraged and maybe even shamed to realize how important it is to identify sin and to avoid it and to find salvation from it through Jesus Christ. The first thought in the book of Romans as we look at the, 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 the good news about this bad news is that the depth of sin is terrible. Romans actually reveals that to us from the very beginning. I don't know how familiar you are with the layout of the book of Romans, but what you have in chapters 1 through 3 is just this, this general thought, and that is that all men have sinned. Now, we'll get to that momentarily in chapter 3, but all men have sinned. But instead of just making that sweeping broad statement in, in a few verses and moving on to the process of salvation, Paul spends three lengthy chapters in fleshing that out. And he says in chapter 1, the Gentiles need the gospel. He says in chapter 2, the Jews need the gospel. He says in chapter 3, all, by definition, Jews and Gentiles need the gospel. Because all, by definition, Jews and Gentiles have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But in order to impress upon us the need for the, the world to hear the gospel... Paul goes into great detail to talk about the depths of that sin. When you read chapter 1, particularly if you read chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, what you're going to find and what should be your reaction is anger, shame, and disbelief. How dare God's creation act like this? Look at chapter 1. Begin with me in verse 29. He says, being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, and or gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, ignorant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, unworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. This is the worst of the worst, right? This is terrible. How, how dare people creating the image of God act like this? You don't have to actually stay in Romans to get this list, do you? Paul does it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 about those who used to be in the world but are now in the kingdom. Such were some of you. He does it in Colossians 3 verses 8 and 9. He does it in Galatians 5, 29 through 21, or 19 through 21. These lists that Paul gives that, that maximize and highlight the, the, the severity and depth and tragedy of sin as it works and comes to fruition in the life of of the world. But you know, sometimes when we read those lists, 
we might miss the point. But what we sometimes do is read those lists so we can find out if we're doing something in them, right? Am I guilty of this or this or this or this? And then preachers will come along and they'll take one of those things out of that list and say, now if you're doing this, you need to repent. All fine and good. I'm not sure the point of the list in, in Paul's letters. You see, almost every time before he gives that list, he talks about attitudes and he talks about heart. And he says, if your heart's not like this, here's what your life's going to look like. The tra- tragedy and terribleness of sin is not only seen, and I'm not even sure it's primarily seen, in the carrying out of the action of that sin as much as it is in the heart of the one who would do these things. When you go back earlier in the context, you're going to read that these were a people whose hearts had been given over to impurity, verse 24, who had exchanged the truth of God for a lie, who had worshipped and served the creature rather than their creator. And because of that, then they would do anything that's in this list. In fact, when you dismiss God, when you throw him out, there's nothing shameful. There's nothing disheartening. There's nothing guilt-ridden about these actions. It's the byproduct of living without God. The point of the passage isn't don't do these things only. It's never leave God out. You see, sin is a willful act of autonomy that says I will go my own way. I'll chart my own course. I'll be my own God. Think about the first sin in the garden. As Eve interacts with the serpent, did God tell you you shouldn't need of this? Well, I'm telling you that you should. Now, you've got a choice. You're going to go your own way or follow him? Friend, every sin that's been committed after that has been committed with that same background, backdrop. An act of defiance, of rebellion. I will be the captain of my destiny. And that sin then results in all of these consequences. That tells me then that to appreciate the magnitude and terribleness of sin, I can't just look at the worst of the worst in the list. You see, what attitude leads to one leads to all of them. And not only the list in Romans chapter 1, but the list in Galatians 5, the list in Colossians 3. So while we may not have individuals in this room this morning that fit perfectly the the criteria of those who are haters of God, inventors of evil, without love and understanding and mercy. But it doesn't mean we don't have people who are struggling with and, and suffering from the terribleness of sin. If I'm going to understand the truth of Scripture about the concept of sin, I'm going to have to realize what a terrible terrible tragedy it really is number two book of romans teaches us the people of sin are numerous the people of sin are numerous we read earlier jacob read for us chapter 3 verses 19 uh, or verses 9 through through 12 did you notice all of the phrases in there It, it it was almost like he was repeating himself for emphasis sake not one not one No one, no one is righteous. Why is that? Why is it the case that no one is righteous? Because they're all unrighteous. That's that's the opposite of it. Why aren't they good? Because they're bad. Why aren't they they sinless? Because they're sinful. Everyone. He would sum it up in that that statement of, of, of familiarity in chapter 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
What I want us to consider, though, from this concept, because we realize that once the cross has occurred and the resurrection has taken place and the gospel has been preached, that there are righteous people declared so in Jesus Christ, right? Paul doesn't deny that. He's going to say that later in this book. The point is, you can't come to the discussion of salvation from a national approach, from a historical approach, from a good deeds approach, from the keeping the law approach. You have to come to Jesus with nothing to offer and realize that outside of Him, I am lost, as lost as the worst of the worst in chapter 1 and chapter 2. I can't say that, that I don't understand it. What's interesting, though, is that of all these men that were declared unrighteous under the law, that were declared unrighteous in the Gentile world, none of them had a plan or the power to get out of the problem. Think of the great men that are implicated in this list. That's every great man and every great woman who lived before Romans chapter 3. They're all implicated in it. Guess what? Abraham's not righteous. Moses is not righteous. Noah's not righteous. All of those statements are true outside of the grace of God and faith in Jesus Christ. They're all true. Moses did not find a way to get his people out of sin. Only Jesus provided that. Abraham did not find a way to keep his family away from iniquity. Only Jesus did that. That's the point of Romans. They're going to bring up Abraham. And and Paul's going to shoot that down and say Abraham needed Jesus. His blood. Of all the great people we have gathered in this room who've done great things and accomplished great things, there's not a one of us that could devise this plan. It didn't come from us. Without Christ, we're not righteous. The, the people of sin are numerous, and friends, we were at one time part of that. And if we're not careful, we still could be. People of sin are numerous. Number three, we learn from the book of Romans that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Again, one of those familiar passages in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. But he doesn't introduce the idea in chapter 6. Look at chapter 5. He says in chapter 5 and verse 12, again familiar, and maybe not quite as familiar as 6.23. Therefore, just as though one man, as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death is spread on all men because all have sinned. Listen. Death is the result of sin. I believe in chapter 8, and this is a a personal conviction of mine, when Paul mentions the law of sin and death in chapter 8, I don't believe he's referencing the law of Moses. I know a lot of people believe that. I don't believe that's a reference to the law of Moses. I believe the law of sin and death is the law of sowing and reaping. You sin, you die. That's just the byproduct of it. That's the only byproduct of it. Sin brings death. That that has been the the common refrain and common thought throughout the book of Romans all the way to chapter 8. You keep sinning, you die. Which is why then... If grace is there, you don't keep sinning so grace can abound because death can still occur. That's the law of sin and death. We, we, we die because we sin. That's just the payment for it. It's the only payment for it. In fact, it's, it's justifiable. Because as David mentioned in our discussion before the Lord's Supper, the wrath of God had to be appeased. Because the wrath of God brings, or the sin brings the wrath of God. The wrath of God brings death upon those who have chosen to do so. There's an absolute need to have that wrath stayed, and we realize that the wages of sin are death. But I think there's, there's something else maybe that needs to be asked here, and I know that it maybe is a little off course, but we probably won't come back to Romans 5 for, for a good long while in, in our discussions together publicly like this. Does that mean then that, that 
we can't help but sin and that we are guilty because Adam sinned already. That's a very prominent discussion in religious circles. You see, if the wage of sin is death and we inherit Adam's sin, then we all die no matter what. And friends, that is the general thought in the religious world about how sin is passed on. And there are two great difficulties with that in our text. By the way, people get that when you read down to, to in chapter 5 to verses 18 and 19. That through one transgression, there resulted in condemnation to all men. So is it true then that you and I die and that you and I sin simply because Adam died in Adam's sin? Can we not help it? Or is it transferred to us? Are we guilty even before we commit our first sin? There are a couple of things even in the text itself that make that an impossibility. And I'll just share these with you. One is, according to that verse we read a moment ago in chapter 5 and verse 12, that death entered the world and death has spread to all men. Did you notice the last phrase of verse 12? Because all have sinned. Paul doesn't saddle me with the guilt, with, with, with the infractions of Adam. In fact, he makes it clear, I follow in Adam's footsteps and for that reason I die also. It doesn't leave me at Adam's doorstep. Suffer that. Furthermore, if you go on and read later in the text, particularly in verse 19, you're going to see that as one man brought disobedience, another man brought obedience, and as every man died in Adam, all men live in Christ. Listen, friends, if every person in the human race is worthy of death because of Adam and will die because of Adam, then salvation is universal because the same thing is said about salvation through Jesus Christ. If every man's made alive in Christ, just like every man dies in Adam, then you and I really have no stake in the game whatsoever. We die in Adam, we're made alive in Christ, let's go home. Romans isn't trying to relieve man of his responsibility. It's trying to emphasize the plight of a people lost in sin. They hearken back to their forefathers in Adam. And the only way out is through their champion and their savior in Christ. We need to realize that if we're going to understand the bad news of the gospel, we're going to have to know that the wages of sin is death. Number four, the book of Romans teaches us the power of sin is enslaving. The power of sin is enslaving. Read here in chapter 6, moving a little further into the book. He says in verse 16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or obedience resulting in righteousness? You ever heard someone try to explain away their sin with some kind of statement like this? Oh, we're just having a good time. Just, just sowing my wild oats. That's just the way I want to live. That feels good to me. You know what? There may be at the surface, at the surface some truth to those statements, at least in the heart and mind of the person making it. But at the end of the day, it's absolutely not true. Because people who commit sin commit sin because they are enslaved to something and they need to be set free. They may even say it like this, well, I, could, I, I don't have to do that, I just like to do it. Take all the sin out of a sinner's life and see how comfortable they are in this world. How comfortable. Because that's the life they've chosen. That, that's what they're addicted to. That's what they're enslaved to. They need someone to set them free. Why is it that sin is so intoxicating and so enslaving? I think it's because it's so deceptive. It's just my observation about it. Think of all the things it promises. It, it looks attractive, promises liberty, 
It promotes autonomy and freedom and independence, and in all reality, it destroys life and leads to death, and there's no value in it at all. But we are generally a people who don't look past tomorrow. So it feels like the best thing. We commit ourselves to it, we chain ourselves to it, and then when we try to get out, watch the struggle and watch the fight. If we're going to appreciate what the Bible says about sin, we're going to have to realize that the power of sin is enslaving. And then finally, the pull of sin is undeniable. Now, I think for all of these first points, we probably are in, at least for the most part, agreement. It's this last one that sometimes gives us trouble. Over in Romans chapter 7, Paul makes some very difficult statements. I'll be honest with you, some very difficult statements. You'll probably say that about a number of Paul's letters, particularly a number of places in Romans that Paul wrote. Paul says in verse 15, For what I am doing, I do not understand, and what I am not, for what I am not practicing, what I, sh- what I would like to do, but I d- I'm doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing I do, not, I, I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. He's going to go on to say in, in verse 19, for the good that I want to do, I, I, I don't do, but I practice the very evil that I don't want. There are a lot of spin been put on these verses through the years, right? A lot of difficulty with explaining exactly what Paul means. And I don't know that Paul is giving us here an autobiography. I don't know if Paul's speaking only about his experience and about no one else's, or if he's speaking as a human to humans. As an individual once enslaved to sin to people who are enslaved in sin, that they might get out of that. And he says, but here's the human experience. I have a law, I know what to do, I don't do it and I sin. And I get mad at myself and I feel guilty and I feel ashamed and I repent and I determine I'm going to do better the next time and I wake up the next day and guess what I do? do the, very thing I don't, the very thing I don't want to do. He's not arguing about, about a sinful nature that's imposed on him through Adam. He's not talking about an inability to control himself in a world full of iniquity. Both of those things would free us from responsibility to get rid of sin that we were told to. But it does describe the plight of a person trying to live in both worlds. And, by, and quite frankly, friends, until this life is over, we will live partly in both worlds. As a people saved by Jesus Christ in a world that rejects him. And there are going to be times that our hearts are going to be pulled to do something that's wrong. The pull of sin is undeniable. For someone to stand up and say, I don't struggle with it. I'm not tempted. They have risen above a level even the Apostle Paul couldn't say he had reached. John would write that if we say to Christians, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So a person to say I'm not tempted goes even further than to say I have no sin. He says I'm not even pulled by it. That man must not be living in this world because this world has allurements. If we teach our young people that you're going to reach the point one day of maturity where the world doesn't pull you anymore, we've sold them a lie, friends. And when they still struggle with things, when they still are, are, things are difficult for them, they're going to look in the mirror and say, what's wrong with me? See, we are people who don't like to talk about our sin. We don't like to talk about our temptations and our shortcomings. We don't generally confess our faults one to another and pray one for another as the New Testament talks about. And it leaves the impression that for the righteous, the pull of sin is no longer there. 
Now, it should be less and less. As we grow more like the Son and closer to the Father, it should be less and less, but it's undeniable that it's still there. And the greatest tragedy in all this, when we deny the pull, we will eventually deny the fall, and we will cover it up. And we'll put on our Sunday best, and we'll put on a smile, and we'll come to worship, and we'll sit in the pew, and we won't deal with the problem because to admit the problem is to admit the pull, and we're Christians, and we're not supposed to be tempted. And the book of Romans makes it abundantly clear. Abundantly clear. The bad news about sin is that until it is eradicated at the end of time, it will continue to plague the world and at times God's people. I don't know where you stand this morning. I don't know where your relationship is with the Lord. I don't know what you've done about the temptations that plague you on a regular basis. In all likelihood, the majority here have said no to sin and no to self and yes to the Lord and fight temptation with prayer and and, and fervency and, and support and are living the life you're supposed to be living. But there's also a possibility that because of this this misunderstanding of how sin affects the church that for the sake of saving face of being considered right of wanting to be looked at as holy and righteous we've just kind of shoved it to the side you know what that doesn't get rid of the sin in fact you'll find it usually multiplies it why not take care of that this morning why not make it right? Why not confess your faults one to another? That we can pray one for another. If you're described in that first chapter of Romans as one who's rejected God and thrown him off and never obeyed the gospel, we're going to talk more about salvation if time stands for this month, but don't wait for the next sermon to obey the gospel. If sin's the greatest problem you have in your life, then the solution's available today, not next week, today found in Jesus and we'd love to assist you to help you and to pray with you any way that we can if you'll come while we stand and sing